It's you being overly optimistic, like everything you think of. And this, this is one of my problems is I think of things and I can't see why that would be a problem. Um, cause I can, you know what I mean? So then you're, you're sort of throwing that at other people going, well, what, what's the problem? Why don't we do that? And they're like, oh, that's a huge lift. Like it's a huge amount of work. Oh my God, that's going to be so hard. But that eternal optimism, I think really helps you think forward and, and, and think big thoughts because you don't really see why that would be a problem. Welcome to the 2.5 Conversations Connecting Innovators. My name is Klaus. I'm an innovation coach in Baden-Württemberg in the southwest of Germany. Innovators and creators from around the globe help each other by sharing highs and lows, their motivation and creative passions, as well as their favorite methods, tools and ideas. The name of the podcast comes from the 2.5% innovators from Roger's Diffusion of Innovation Theory. Find more details, all the episodes and transcripts at the2.5.net. Enjoy the show. My guest in this episode is David Perry. David is a serial entrepreneur. He started his career as a game designer and has worked on many well-known and successful games and technologies such as cloud gaming. His latest company, Caro, is a genius idea based on the Shopify technology to bring brands together and allow them selling via cross-store partnerships. Welcome to the podcast, David. Hey, thanks for inviting me. I'm really glad that we have this conversation today. Thank you very much for taking the time for this. David, we wanted to talk about your entrepreneurial journey. Let's put it that way. There is lots to talk about. You have done lots and tons of stuff. But I wanted to start with a very easy thing. When did you start doing photography? Oh, photography. That's an interesting one. My father was a photographer and he was... It was just something he loved doing um, and, and he did it professionally. And so for me, I, I sort of felt bad that through his life, I never asked him to teach me photography. And um, and so what happened was at one point I realized like I really need to to, to learn this skill. And he and so um, I asked him, you know, if I could buy the best camera in the world, what would it be? And he said, uh, well, when they went to the moon, they took a Hasselblad with them. <laughs> and so I went out and I bought a Hasselblad camera. And I actually realized that just buying a really good camera immediately improves your, your photography because you're, you've got a, you know, a high quality camera, great lens, etc. And so I then found out that there's people all over the world that are willing to teach you if you can just get in a room with them. And so I found all these different photographers that I really liked. And, uh, and for some reason they're very, they're very good. And, and, uh, you know, like in headshots or portraits or whatever they do. And I found myself in a room with all of them, uh, one by one, Canon would fly them out to California to do a presentation and I would be in the room and, and then they would have some special intensive course and I would go take it. And I realized that you can get these people that have learned something for 30 years and they're willing to share. The, the, what they've what they've learned in a very short period of time, usually in one or two days. And the result of that is it's like in you know in the movie The Matrix, 
where he's like, I want to fly a helicopter, and they just download the information into him, and suddenly he can fly a helicopter. I feel you can do that with subjects like photography. You don't have to have spent the 30 years. They can they can tell you what they've learned, and you can pull that from e each individual um, person, and you start to build an understanding of photography. And so for me, it's been absolutely fascinating. I've learned it's like drinking through a fire hose when you spend time with these people. And, uh, and so the net result is, uh, I'm at a point now, there's only a few more that I want to get time with, but I think I understand it. My biggest problem is getting time to actually do the photography. And, uh, you know, cause a lot of it, I like shooting people by the way, versus landscapes or something like that. So I like, uh, trying to capture people and it's like a video game to me. So can I get a picture of you that you feel is the best picture of you so that you want to use it in social media, et cetera. And so when I see someone replacing their icons everywhere with my picture, mm -hmm. that makes me actually happy. That's like, that's like, I don't, I don't charge for photography just to be clear. It's just a hobby. But when I get that to happen, it feels really good. I think I started in around, um, around 2004 would be when I got going and, um, and I've got my own studio now I've got ridiculously cool lighting and everything you could possibly imagine for, uh, for taking pictures of people. So you're taking it really serious on the one side on you kind of geeked out probably on, on the tech side, but you, you like the, the, the emotional, the, the people side, the human side uh, of the photography as well. Yeah, what, what you realize is people tense up a lot when, when they get in front of a camera. And so partly it's helping them realize that, that they can do it and they can and they can look good on camera. And they and once they start to see it, they you can see the unlock in their brain and they and they start unlocking. And there's some great tips. There's a photographer in New York, Peter Hurley's sort of respected as being one of the best uh, or maybe the best headshot photographer that's out there. And he has um he he discovered that if you have somebody laugh, their whole face lights up. But nobody wants um, a headshot of them laughing really for business, for example. So what you do is you get them to laugh, and then the moment after the laugh is when you take the picture because their their face is still, their eyes are still lit. There's energy in their face that that you just that's not normally there. It's normally like you know if they just go back to normal, it's the normal sort of regular face. And so all kinds of interesting stuff like that. So it, that means that to some extent you have to make people laugh on command and that, that becomes an interesting challenge. You know, as some person you've never met before, you have to goof around with them and sort of have fun, be the life and soul while this shooting is going on. So, you know, what is that? Is that because some people think it's just about learning, you know, ISO and shutter speeds and things like that. But no, there's definitely more to it. So yeah, I enjoy the nerdy pieces. I enjoy the Photoshop. I have AI retouching. Um, so I'm I'm the one that's embracing all the very latest technologies. Like the second they come out, I've already got it. <laughs> well, what a surprise. Or I'm in the beta for it before it comes out. And a lot of photographers disagree with all that. They think that's terrible. It's awful. It's ruining the, the industry, but it's not. It, it's just using the tools that are available. It's funny because when you look at old film photography, they actually did their own retouching in the darkroom. So you can see where they edit and yes. brighten and change pictures in the darkroom. So in reality, you know, picture manipulation is, has always been a piece of the, the art, but some people don't want to learn the modern software. I do. And so I, I think it's just a fascinating space. And I love that 
now um, our cell phones are getting so smart. So it's an interesting idea that in the past we used to make cameras all the same way. Like every company was basically making the same thing with slight variations. But now with software, you're going to see more and more uh, machine learning and intelligence built into the camera. So this, the camera is becoming a really, I heard recently Apple has like 800 people working on their camera. It's definitely a, a very important piece of mobile phones. And I think the pictures it's, it starts to take actually are going to end up becoming really hard to take on a, on a, on a normal camera. So the normal cameras are going to have to, like the, the, the DSLRs are going to have to start stepping up their game to just keep up with the innovation that's going into the cell phones. So it's going to get, it's going to get very interesting. I enjoy watching all of it. Sometimes I, I am a bit sad about that these changes happen only over year after year after year and not uh, not uh, not faster because it's just there's a new iPhone model that has the latest camera equipment, right? So, But I, I'm very much with you. I, I have looked a lot into different cameras also for, for the podcast, for example, and uh, for doing video coachings and stuff like that. But I, I'm, I'm using my iPhone and I really like that that uh, easy portability the, 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 that you can use it for basically everything everything and it still does great pictures well maybe limited in in a way also but more limited by my own abilities as a photographer i don't know you should take some of these classes you'll 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 uh you'll absolutely love it once you spend some time with people that are that impress you so find a photographer where you're like their pictures are amazing and then see if they offer any kind of educational content that you can absorb it's it's great because the minute you find your pictures starting to there was one um I remember his name now. Um, it'll come to me, but there's, there, there was one course I took, and like just this one course on the other side, my pictures just immediately got better, and uh, and, and that that kind of idea that you can just one single class. In fact, there's an online class I took, and I, I I just fundamentally made my stuff better. Use the internet, learn from everyone you can in whatever subject you're in, and so we. When we talk about photography, I did the same thing with woodworking, uh, exact same thing. I have a full woodworking shop with, I, I've spent my time with master woodworkers to learn from them and try to absorb as much information. That one is a little more time consuming because just making a table can take four or five days. And so it's a little more time consuming. So these days I haven't had the time to, to really lean into that, but in the past I certainly did. And yeah, again, you, you know, you'll be at a, at a conference and there'll be some guy giving a lecture about varnishes. And that sounds terribly boring when you think about it, but he'll be giving a lecture on varnishes and, and he's done it for 30 years. And then he, he sums it up and says, this is the best varnish. The value to you as a, a woodworker for someone else to just give you that information to me is, is incredible. So of course I rush off and buy that varnish and guess what? It's great. That's kind of that sharing. I think the video game industry is really good at that too. Um, if, if at the game developers conference, you know, there's a lot of sharing going on. Yeah. And, uh, and so if you're new to the industry, some of the things that get said to you that might seem that, you know, a, a professional might take for granted, but for someone new, it's like, oh my God, that's the most interesting way to think about things or, or, or you know, they can learn really quickly. Absolutely. I mean, sharing is one of these essential things that makes you richer in a way Basically, it doesn't cost you anything, right? Sharing knowledge and learning from others is, is just such an important thing of, of being a, a person, I think. Yeah, the name just came to me. It's Danny Diamond. So that was a photography course I took online. It teaches you everything from photography through to, to retouching in Photoshop. And so 
just as a, a it's like a stair step for me when you get someone like that who's a professional that that really um says d-a-n-i diamond we'll uh, include the link in the show notes so people can look at at his courses um so you're a big learner you, you have the courage to start something and then you understand that you need to learn something and at some point of time you understand that uh, you have gotten to a certain place and you understand that how things work coming quickly back to the photography thing Do you remember the first picture you were actually pleased with? How long did it take you from starting to getting to that point? I had a daughter, a newborn daughter, and so I was taking pictures of her. And, and the pictures were looking much better than anything I had done before. Because again, I had a Hasselblad camera, which is a great camera. But I actually started to realize the weaknesses, like the, the Hasselblad, every time, if, as she got a little older, when she would be like running along, The camera couldn't keep up it was very slow to take a picture yes and so i missing shots i'd see something really cute and i would try to take the shot and it would be gone and i'd be like oh, i missed that moment and i missed the moment a lot and then you start getting opinions well maybe this isn't the right camera for me maybe there's a better camera and so that's the that's when you start going down that trail of maybe there's a better way to go about this and and you know then you can start capturing what you want to capture i have used one of these mamiya middle format cameras with a six by six uh, a centimeter negative and it's great uh, for stills or for architecture and stuff like that because you can do the composition easily you you hold it in a different way the, this camera and that makes it easy to do, do that composition right but if people are moving it's just horrible because it's so big and clunky and it takes uh it's just heavy for example What you find, uh, I, 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 in one of my classes, they said to me that if you ever look at the camera, that's bad because you actually need to maintain the relationship with the model. So the person uh, who's about to get picture taken needs your full attention. So if you are constantly, they call it gimping, where you're constantly looking at your camera and tweaking settings, that's distracting to them because in a way you're distracting them by it. So the trick is to find a camera that you're going to use for many years and learn it so that you know where all the buttons and knobs are. So if you need to change a setting, it just happens. So a really good photographer is literally changing settings on the fly without ever, you never see them having to, to, to sort of, what what does that button do again? Or where is that button? Or where's that menu option? They, they don't do that. It just, the camera just adjusts and they continue taking pictures. That's why it's important to sort of find you know, what you're going to commit to and, and learn it. I've made the mistake of buying five different models of camera and now, and they're all completely different and it make, it's a mess. So <laughs> you need to take another course for, for this, uh, reducing complexity with the cameras, for example. Yep. Maybe a new, uh, uh, a new thing you can do in the future as a, another project, as another uh, company. Uh, looking at uh, your entrepreneurial journey, it starts with creativity. What I read is that as a teenager, you started out with the design of a game, possibly without having a computer yourself. W what was that? What, what drove you to design a game as a, as a young person with uh, maybe 14, 15 years old? What happened is when I was young, video games were actually published in magazines. And so you would buy the magazine and then type in the, the game and then play it. And so... If you can imagine a very basic game, you could type in quite quickly and play it, but some of them would be quite advanced and it would take hours and hours and hours of typing. 
And what are the odds of you typing all that in without a mistake? Mm. Um, it's nearly zero. So, so there's going to be mistakes in there. And so what you do is after you've typed lots of games in, you start to recognize things. So you'll see it says lives equals three. And you're like, hmm, I wonder if I change that to like 10. Do I get 10 lives? And yes, you do. <laughs> and so you start going, well, hold on a minute. What else is in here? And you start playing with the code. Like, I want to move a little faster. Can I, how can I move faster? And you sort of, that's how I got started. And, and once you have very rudimentary sort of programming skills, then you start to think, well, well, I could do a very simple game where there's just a blob that does, you know, the, one of the first I did was a, a little zombies game where, you know, they just zombies hone in on you and your job is just to try to avoid them and get them to fall into pits. And so it, it can be um, the most simple game idea ever. But when you're coding it, it's really quite fun. It's like a puzzle and you're trying to solve it yourself. Can I get this to work? And, uh, and once you get it working, that's quite addictive. I didn't know that you could be paid to do this. And so once I, once I started to get paid, um, I couldn't believe that you would be paid to make games. This is the craziest idea ever. And so I just went all in at that point. I was just making games as fast as I could. And then the way you learned in those days, there was no online, there was no you know, downloadable courses or anything. There was no in, in my city teaching, I would, I would argue even in Ireland, because I was in Northern Ireland at the time, teaching how to program video games. So the only way to learn was through books. And I think that was the thing that I valued the most is there were some individuals out there that I was never going to meet, but those people put down what they learned and shared it with everybody else. So that was how you, you would drink through a fire hose in those days as you would suddenly learn things that um, would be a huge unlock to your game. So if you think about um, speaking a language, the more words you know, the more fluent you become. It's the same with programming. The more you learn, the more fluent you become and the more uh, ideas you can execute. And so at some point when you're totally you know, fluent at a certain programming language, then anyone could ask for anything and you can just start coding. Like you can literally, I want a football game. Okay, let's go. I want a, a basketball game. Let's go. Because you know how you'd go about it. But when you're at the very beginning and you can, moving blobs around on a screen is quite challenging. That's really the path. So it's a learning path. But I think it's important. I like working with people that have some background where they've at least tried coding um, because it gives them a slightly different perspective on how everything works. When you work with people that like everything is a mystery to them, like they're, you know, they just, they look at everything as complex and they don't want to know anything more about it. I find it more fun to work with people that um, have looked under the hood and understand how things work and can converse with engineers. And, and so what actually happens and what I've found in my career is that obviously helps you communicate with programmers if you know what a program is and how it works. But the same thing then if you want to talk to your animators are you willing to learn how animation works like are you willing to actually spend time watching training or learning about how animation television animation works or video game animation are you willing to do that too because your 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 rapport with your animators will go up exponentially based upon your interest in what they do and a lot of people just go, well, I'm not an animator, so I don't know anything about it. Well, it doesn't stop you learning something mm -hmm. about it because you do, you're going to have a much better time with your animators. And then you go, well, what about audio? Same thing. And so you can imagine in every dimension, um, having an interest in it 
helps greatly create a rapport with the people that actually do that work. That was that I found valuable in my career because I was genuinely interested in every single piece of the puzzle. I, I was thinking about that recently because I like if I go to a conference and I'm on stage and they put the microphones on me, I'm the one that's wondering which microphones are they using, why, how the soundboard works. You know, what I mean? like, yes, I'm literally interested in how that individual does their job. And so even even um, in this conversation, I'm using uh, an SMB, uh, the Shura microphone. I have a, a Rode there. You know, they have their podcast. It's called the Rodecaster Pro. I have Cloudlifter, which does the uh, microphone balancing. But basically, I, again, why do I do that? Do I do podcasts? No, I don't. But I just am interested. I don't want to, to not understand how it all works. And And so for me, that's really been very helpful in my career. And I'd highly advise, you know, when you get the opportunity to learn something, even if it's a little out of band for what you need, I think you should just go ahead and, and learn as much as you can about it. At some point of time, it will sort of backfire and would, will help you that you have learned all, all these things. Yeah, you're going to meet somebody and that's very important in their life, whatever it is that they do. And the fact that you understand it, I think is, is really fun. You were born in, and you grew up in, in Ireland uh, at a time where it was basically not normal or where video, to have a computer, uh, where video games were just starting uh, very simply. So what did you bring when you went from Ireland to London? What was that thing that you sort of brought along? You just talked about that. You were interested in things. You were learning things. You were looking into maybe some questioning some things and sort of adding to, to stuff that you read. But what was the main thing that you brought from, from Ireland to London where you had your sort of your next career step? Well, imagine you're in Ireland and you're coding games and you get your first publishing deal, like a professional publishing deal from, from a company in England and you're still in high school and you think you know what you're doing. Like no, there was no one ever to say to me, you're not very good at this really. <laughs> like, you're, <laughs> you know, I know you think you've got this, but you're on a scale of one to 10, you're about a three. Um, there was no one to say that to me. So I think I'm a 10 and I go to England and I realize I'm a three or maybe even a two because I'm put in a room with other people who are experts. And so what do you do? when you get into that situation, because I realized, oh my God, they're going to work out that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a three and they're going to just send me back to Ireland. And so I had to learn so fast and the people there were very cool. So they, they were willing to, you know, work with me. I got to see their code and um, seeing their, their code, I, I sort of learned how a real video game gets made, like a professional video game, not what I thought a video game would be made like. And so I learned so quickly and, and, and I survived. So I, I, if you can imagine plotting a graph of my video game education, it was all in real time, but I was looking through other people's code and, and the, they, they basically, I, I mean, to be honest, I think they realized that the, the guy in charge was really smart. And he, I think he looked at me going, Hmm, um, you know what I'm going to have him do is I'm going to give him the code from another game and then have him convert that to another platform. So I took a, a Sinclair Spectrum game called um, Pajama Rama, and I had to move that over to the Amstrad um, computer. And so the idea of making me look through that code top to bottom and get it working on another device, I thought was a really great move because by the end of it, 
obviously I knew um, how a professional game is really made. And uh, and Mike, the, they didn't send me home, thankfully. And I, I kept working in England. So that worked out very well. So it was lots of learning. Did you think that was rather stressful or was that exhilarating and I don't know the right word, exciting? For me, the most exciting thing in education is the aha moment. It's the moment you realize something that matters. There's a lot of mundane stuff too, but but whenever there's been moments I'm certain you've had where you're like, oh, that's interesting. I get it now. Uh, and that aha moment, I think, is the most valuable thing in education because it's usually some kind of unlock for you. Like you just, you know, in a video game, you go plus one in something. It's like you just went plus one in that in that thing. Uh, you're, like you just leveled up. You're better at that now. And, uh, and so I think that's the drug is that um, you feel the growth and it sort of changes your perspective on how things work. So for me, that's what I was getting from those people. Lots of unlocks really rapidly, lots of aha moments. And that's, I, I honestly wish education today incorporated more aha moments for kids. The simple definition would be how many aha moments can you give a kid where it's like, oh my God, now I get it, right? Like that, there's a huge unlock there. And then how rapidly can you make those aha moments happen? Like how can you compress the downtime between them? Is that once a week they go, oh, wow, I get it. Or, or can you get that once a day or once an hour? That would be really interesting. Mm, yeah. See how that would change education because it's really thrilling. People like learning. They just hate the mundane. You know, if it's once a month that you get in a ha moment, that's torture. It's not enough, right? Yeah, I'm also yeah. right now thinking about um, doing a, a course about some innovation management basics. And in, initially, I thought about doing a long course with, and explain everything. But I sort of ended up doing something that is really, really quick, that that sort of gets you to maybe not aha moments, but gets to you to something in a very short time and doesn't want to teach everything, but sort of progress you quickly. And I think that's the better way to do because uh, then people are more involved. That's the value you add is you curate. So imagine there's a business book that's 200 pages long and right. it's got one idea. There, I would say the vast majority of business books have one idea that's real. That's a real aha moment. Legitimately, it was worth writing the book for, but it's not worth typing 200 pages for. And, and so, you know, a lot of those books get condensed down to 15 minutes and they still have that aha moment in them. And so if you're curating them, you get to pick and choose, you know, you can go through and collect up all these really, really interesting. That's, that's definitely very interesting. That's a very clever idea. You can then download this into other people and have them think, you know, their time spent with you is, is worth its weight in gold because you're, you're respecting their time, but you're absolutely right. There's all kinds of courses that they think that you buy by the pound. Like they think that if they sell you 80 hours of a course to learn Photoshop, you know, that that's a good thing and they want to make it 150 hours. It's like, I have no interest in spending 150 hours on this. Can you please get, you know, show me the key things that I need to know and condense the time, find ways to explain it in the least amount of time. And you'll find that in this world that we're heading towards, people are getting way, way more impatient and, uh, and, and they need, I mean, look at TikTok. I mean, they, I don't know if you're spending time with any teenagers on TikTok, but when you watch them, they have no patience at all. <laughs> it's like, get to, it's not, it's, oops, it's not interesting enough already. And they just immediately move on to this thing. So yeah, it's kind of fun. 
that, that that's kind of the the thing where where these business books still need to change because um, in order to get taken serious, you have to write the two hundred pages book. Even you know that most of the people won't read more than the first forty five pages. I was in my car recently driving to Los Angeles, and it takes over an hour to get there. So I fired up a new audiobook. The guy spent the entire hour telling me about what he was going to tell me. Right. He never got to, never said a single thing. Not, I couldn't believe it. I was actually, I got to Los Angeles and I parked my car and said, I learned nothing from that book. Like nothing. It was just the guy talking about, you know, this is going to change your life when you hear this thing that I'm going to tell you about. It's so important. It's critical to the future. Um, you know, it's the future of marketing, whatever it is. And it, and it just never stopped the talk. And, and and no aha moments, no learning. Um, it to me is infuriating when they do that. So uh, so yeah, don't do that. Be the guy that doesn't, and you will you'll just fly past all of those people that just uh, you know waste people's time. Good advice. Save time, David. When you left London uh, for LA, what was it? What you brought from from London to LA? What what was it? What you basically had learned? in this time in London that sort of brought you ahead? That was the big leap that you took? I think there was two things occurred to me. One was in moving to, to the United States, it was like a reset. I had got to a point where I, I think I, I could make any video game. And so if you can imagine on, on a sort of a programming level or a game making level, I felt like the unlock had happened. So now let's go. Like it's showtime now. It's like you've done all your acting lessons. Now put me in a movie, you know, like let's go. And I get to America. I had my own game engine that I had created for making games. And it had some, what I thought were quite straightforward ideas, but turned out to be good ideas because they were so flexible. And so what I realized is the game engine I'd made was unbelievably flexible. I could make, you know, like in a game like Earthworm Jim, there were all these different levels. We could have anything happen in the game and, and this engine could handle it. So you're riding on hamsters or you're underwater in a submarine. It doesn't matter. Whatever you want, this engine can handle it. And so the very ver first version of where that was going was when I arrived in America because I had been um, sort of building that and building it the way I thought it needed to be. And so as I continued to make games in the US, that engine got more and more potent as time went on. But I, I arrived in the US feeling pretty confident that, that you know, we we're going to do something good. The thing I didn't realize is I was going to get surrounded by really talented people. I had one friend in the UK that I had worked with. His name was Nick Broody, and he was just by far the best artist I'd ever worked with. And so for me to move to America without Nick was dangerous, right? So now... I'm heading off into this new opportunity, which is pretty exciting to, to go off to California. It was short term, so it was only for one project. But when I arrived in California, the people that were there were actually really good. And, and then they said to me, you know, is there anyone you'd like to bring from the UK? And of course, I said, well, we got to get Nick. And they ended up bringing Nick out. Ultimately, the team in the US got very potent and very strong. And so that's what ultimately kept me from ever wanting to go back to the UK was because I was surrounded by really talented people and the games we made kept winning awards. So, you know, we got game of the year, best graphics of the year, best audio of the year. We just kept winning awards. And because of that, you know, we got even tighter. And so that was, uh, I was very lucky by the, the people I ended up getting to meet and, and work with. And that was also a time when you, you turned from being the coder 
to being the business guy in a way, right? Where you you became an entrepreneur. No, I, I look at it a little different. I think of it as um, in the, vi the video game industry used to be like the music industry. There used to be somebody who would do the interviews and you know, like in a, in a, in a, in a band, there's the lead singer stands at the front of the stage and the lead singer ends up being the one getting interviewed more than the rest of the band. That was just the structure of video game teams. So Miyamoto or Kojima or David Braben, um, any of these people, it was, it was because there was someone on the team that usually ended up doing the most interviews or getting, getting seen in magazines giving more speeches, whatever it was. And it's very interesting how that's kind of changed in the game industry. There's a lot less, you know, Will Wright in charge of The Sims. There was usually like this figurehead person that would would lead the fray. And um, and so I found myself in that position where I was getting a lot of a lot of press. So I was one of the last, I would say, of of that period where, you know, Peter Molyneux and all these famous uh, people that the press, the video game press would circle around. Nowadays, it seems to be much more focused on just the game license of the game property. And a lot of gamers have absolutely no idea who made that game, um, who's involved, or you know, they don't really know how to follow them and see what else they make in their career. That That's kind of been, for me, That that's a bit of a change from the way it used to be, you know, back in the 90s. You started your own company. So that normally involves that you have to do more things that is other things also and then you have to share your time with uh with all these things or your time is shared among all these things so so was that was that another thing that you really had to learn and wanted to learn about say hiring uh, or doing contracts or doing marketing stuff licensing well in, in my career i've always felt like we have an idea we're going to go do this thing and i've never thought are we are we capable of doing that thing so you know hiring and licensing and everything else you just you just do it um you don't say well i don't know how to do that so therefore we're not going to do that you just start executing and you start you know if if licensing is necessary you solve that problem and and that's generally how i i rolled in my career was always By no means was I great at running companies. And when I started, I had actually zero experience. But you learn on your feet as you're dealing with it, you know, with taxes or employment or contracts or whatever. And the reality is that's that's actually okay. When I got into cloud gaming, I didn't know anything about the cloud. Um, I had never built a server. I'd never been in a server uh, and actually, you know, in a server farm putting a you know, servers in racks. I'd never done that before. Does that mean you don't or you shouldn't because you don't have experience? Um, no, I built the first server on my dining room table. I drove to Los Angeles and pushed it into a rack and turned it on and left, <laughs> right? I didn't know anything about data centers. So I called the companies in Wikipedia that, that had big uh, data networks in the US. Most of them didn't reply, but one of them did. And I had a really great conversation. And the net result was them saying, we want to work with you. So suddenly you've got data centers available to you. And so the, I guess that's the point is, what, what I mean, you can understand why in a lot of cases, it's very easy to talk yourself out of something, but it's much more fun when you talk yourself into something and just, you know, start executing and you'll find yourself 
um, at some point you'll be you'll have solved the problem and you it's even hard to think about how you got there because the path just took you there I think we need to go back to that for a moment because you started in games design you uh, learned from coding from magazines because you liked to type your own games you learned a lot about programming doing the programming you uh, came to the us you uh, developed lots of games along with other people you got to different levels in your game in in you started a game development company and uh, at some point of time you did some consulting work you did investing and so there is a, a long way from from uh, designing also to the cloud uh, gaming but it, it sort of it comes apparent when when you see all these different steps that you worked on uh, the public game uh, industry map for example that that was sort of giving you also an idea what the game industry was about because you could visualize it so there was a few years that sort of formed you from the game designer and game entrepreneur to the cloud gaming person Yeah, no, the, the in-between is really all just learning about those different things that I found interesting again. So I had never built a website and it kind of infuriated me that I didn't fully understand how that all worked. I just hired help that, that could work on the game industry map, for example. The concept was that if you wanted to work in the game industry, there could have been a game company down the street from you and you'd never know it because they're usually in some warehouse somewhere. So what if we had a map that let you search by location so you could see, you know, here's there's all these little development studios in my neighborhood that I didn't even know existed. That was the thought. And so I worked on that for a while, just sort of building that database and, and sort of getting that going. In reality, that wasn't something that I had the bandwidth to really run long term because it it it's never ending stuff you have to do. But it was fascinating because we stood it up and it was graphically very cool and it had it had the full data set of all the the, the developers and and uh, at that time and including it started to expand into well, what if you want to work at, at GameStop or some other game related thing? It started to expand into that as well. There was another person who had built one. And his was a little more simple, but 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 also very very useful because you could search, you could see visually where things were. And so um, in the end, I was like, look, there's already one of these existing, and it's it's doing the job just fine. So I'm not going to continue with this. But it was it was just interesting to build a website, you know, when you haven't ever done it. So it's mm. just another box to check at some point i know the feeling in 1998 i started my own search engine uh and <laughs> i soon found out that google is doing a much better job so yeah well so you had a really good uh, idea of the gaming industry you knew where people were you knew about how it, it's produced how it's marketed and, and stuff like that and then we we get into these changes uh technology wise with the cloud uh, which is a normal thing to talk about but in 19 uh, in 24 5 10 it was just something very special it didn't didn't really exist for many people uh, as a thing so cloud been doing cloud gaming which is actually where we originally met also is is something really special so what brought you to that uh, to cloud gaming i'm normally constantly trying to work out what's what's next and where where things are going and 
to me, this idea of everyone having to rebuy consoles and having to buy physical games when the rest of the world was moving towards streaming. I once was looking at a cell phone and I said, someday you will be able to play every song ever, every ever recorded on this device. Like that, that seemed at the time crazy. Cause you know, you'd probably, that phone could probably have held 20 songs or 50 songs or something like that. Cause there's very little memory in it. But if you think about the future at some point, it's going to get, it's going to get solved. So the thought was, is that really going to be something that stops video games spreading or is, or will video games be everywhere? And so then you keep simplifying your idea. Well, if I can have every video game, where would I want them? Well, across all my devices, everywhere I go. So our, our tagline at the time was everything everywhere instantly was what we were trying to, to work towards. And that means every video game ever made on every device instantaneously. So then you say to yourself, well, how would you do that? Uh, that's not going to be, you can't do that with hardware. You have to do that some other way. And so the concept was, well, it's going to have to be from the internet and it's going to have to be incredibly high performance like higher performance than anything today then you start looking for talent and uh, one of the secret tricks to finding killer talent is to find whatever the subject is you you're interested in find open source uh, libraries for that subject and you'll find if you do that there's some guy who's the biggest contributor to that library, who's probably a Jedi in that thing that you're trying to find out about. My point is he or she could be anywhere in the world. And if you can find them, you can add incredibly talented people um, to your team. And so that, that, that really led us down this path of, I know it's not technically possible to do this with any kind of quality today, but what would it take when, when you put incredibly smart people on the job? One of the examples was um, I was trying to raise money for cloud gaming and all these people went on record, like literally game programming directors went on record saying that this is the dumbest idea ever. It'll never work. It's actually technically impossible. And the reason it's impossible is if I press a button here and that button has to travel to another city and then render the image and then send it back to me, there's always going to be a delay there. And therefore, this is the dumbest idea ever, because who wants to play sloppy game experiences like that? And, and you can imagine our investors came to us saying, you know, this doesn't, this isn't looking good. This is a problem. And at the time, this, the, the chief technology officer at Electronic Arts um, went on record and said, actually, no, I believe that this is possible. Um, to get this to feel really good. And so that helped me immensely. That was the hugest unlock. Tim Wilson was the guy. Yeah, sadly, he's not not with us anymore, but Tim Wilson, he was a very important person being this the CTO of Electronic Arts. So people listened. And, and the result was we found an incredibly interesting way to go about it. So if you think about a video game today running on a console, what nobody thought that we would do is what would happen if you ran that game twice as fast in the cloud? as you do locally. So imagine it takes up this much time to run the game locally, but in the cloud, it takes up this much time because I'm running it twice as fast. I've actually compressed time. So we have time left. So I can now transmit your key press through the internet using the time that we've saved. And there was all kinds of other trickery that we were doing by the way. But the net result was that the game would feel identical locally as it did from the cloud. There were viewers at the time going, what is this magic? This is impossible because we had actually managed to, to demonstrate that.
that's one of those things that reminds you that there's always a way. There's when you get really smart people working together and, and our compression algorithms and things were done differently from every compression algorithm at that point, because we had the people who were able to, to just think differently with how you go about the steps of compressing. And so the result was you get an experience that seems impossible. And that's, that's like the most fun ever to be working with those kind of people. You can understand why, right? Because you have all these super smart people and they are correct saying there's no way this will ever work until you come up with a way for it to work. And then everyone goes, hmm, never thought of it like that. And it's like when uh, VR came out, I it made me feel nauseous. And so I immediately thought, mm, this is not something that, that I think is going to be ultimately successful. And I turned out to be wrong. And the reason I was wrong is because they designed games where you could stand still. And I didn't, I didn't, at the time that didn't, didn't occur to me. What if you don't put all the modern games on VR and instead you make games for VR um, that are just, you know, waving your arms around like Beat Saber, I would argue is the best VR game because at the time we were automatically assuming you're going to try to put Call of Duty into VR. And it would be great if you could, but you, there'd be tons of people vomiting everywhere if you're doing it. So I, I guess that's my point is that for me, being on the ground where, where new ideas are happening is actually a really fun place to be, brainstorming with really smart people. You also need to allow people to think differently and and sort of challenge people to to move beyond what is possible today at some point of time. Is there a trick to do that? In such a case, if, if the technology doesn't exist yet, if you have the vision of doing something in some other way because you believe that it could be done somehow, you right. sort of have to give yourself and the others the permission to do that extra thinking. You also have to sometimes maybe force them or at least incentivize them. Is there a trick to do that so that they sort of move or think beyond uh, of what is possible? It's incredibly annoying. It's you being overly optimistic. Like everything you think of, and this this is one of my problems, is I think of things and I can't see why that would be a problem because um, <laughs> I can, you know what I mean? So then you're you're sort of throwing that at other people going, well, what what's the problem? Why don't we do that? And they're like, oh, that's a huge lift. Like it's a huge amount of work. Oh my God, that's going to be so hard. But that eternal optimism, I think really helps you think forward and, and, and think big thoughts because you don't really see why that would be a problem to get the point. And, and it doesn't, and it, it also helps. The way I like to think about it is I, I sometimes explain this as, as the idea of, of looking down a track and saying, um, the analogy I use is an industry is on a train. So the whole video game industry is on a train. And they're going along and the, the, everyone's very happy they're in the video game industry. Um, there are some people who missed the train and they are chasing and trying to catch up, but they missed it. And then there's some people who are trying to get ahead of the train and think, where is it going? Like, what's the next station? And, and they're thinking about that. So the exercise, the mental exercise is to say, if something existed, how would you beat it? So, you know, name the game, name the experience, name the, the category, whatever it is. You can start asking yourself, what, what, what could I do to beat it? And you keep exhausting that. Okay, if we did that, how would I beat that? And if you keep asking yourself how you beat something until you can't beat it anymore, you're usually down the track a decent amount. And if you start heading there, it usually what you're building starts to look more interesting than, than more of currently what, what's being done. 
an example I used to give. This is going to sound weird, but in my speeches, I used to show a picture of, I, I saw in popular, I think it was popular um, mechanics magazine. They had a, a whole set of chainsaws and, and they were all the same. Like the chainsaw industry has given up. They, they've literally just, they're all making the same exact device. They're the same shape and size with a chain and a, but the colors are different and the logo is different, but they're all making the same product. And, and I, I said in my speeches, like, God, I hope this never happens to the game industry. Wouldn't this be terrible if, if games just become this repetitive? And so then I showed screenshots of soccer games and screenshots of first-person shooters. And then I would challenge the press to name the first-person shooter. Can you tell me what this screenshot is from? And they couldn't name the game. And I'm like, well, in that case, we're already starting to become the chainsaw industry. And that's very worrying, right? We don't want you to be able to not tell the game because it looks like 50 other games that look the same, right? Whether it's the tip of a gun in, in a warehouse with some crates in a, in a refinery. And so um, to me, I think that's the, the opportunity for games as we continue here is so incredibly exciting. I had a LinkedIn uh, message sent to me the other day. Somebody said... Uh, they had interviewed me like 23 years ago and I had talked about characters in the video game talking using AI and how important that's going to be. And they were kind of like, you realize how long ago that was? And it's <laughs> so scarily long ago that it's taken this long to get to that point where it's actually going to be possible now. But you can see how even that idea is going to fundamentally add new experiences to games, having characters that are intelligent and understand what's going on around them. Meaning that in video games, you know, for the longest time, there's still video games like this today. You can walk into town, they'll say, welcome to town traveler, or you could kill everybody. And, and they'll still say, welcome to town traveler, because the game doesn't really know. And that non-player character just doesn't really understand what's going on. I think that's all gonna change. And so video games to me is a bit like the wild west, the opportunity space to keep looking down the track and inventing new things is always there. And, um, but you have to pay attention and be embracing technology as early as you possibly can so that you can think about the uses for it. In the games we used to make, we always looked for a hook. We always try to find, find some new experience that you'd never seen before in a game. And that, that was usually exciting for us because it would, it, it would give us something to hold on to. Like it, we did a game called MDK where you could get a sniper rifle and you could shoot something a mile away. Like you. Uh, you can shoot a robot in the eye a mile away. Uh, that was new at the time. And so the the idea of giving you a new mechanic to me was was a really fun piece of it as well. So I guess the point is the video game space is just endlessly vast and the opportunity space is so big. And what I was getting worried about is it was starting to, there was a lot of repetition happening um, where, where, where games were starting to get repetitive when they don't need to. The space is so incredibly vast. Especially if you have like version one, version two, version three, like FIFA's, you get uh, new new versions every year or so. It's it's the same with movies. Uh, the concept works, people like it, they want more, and then you, the industry delivers more products, right? And and that way you sort of start something repetitive, possibly. Yeah. 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 Gaikai, the cloud gaming company we were just talking about, was eventually sold to Sony. And they incorporated the technology into the, uh, the Sony Playstations. And at some point of time, you left Gaikai, you started something new. And before we get to that, I was wondering, what did you learn from the 
game design, working in the game industry for business in general? I mean, we talked about a lot of things right now, I understand. But if you would sort of try to sum up that, the, the biggest lessons from the game industry for you in business. I started from the beginning with, you know, making simple games. And then later I realized that branding was the secret because when I was in England, I made the Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles, which was the British version of the, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And it went straight to number one. And so I realized that branding in the video game industry is incredibly powerful. Um, later, I made the Terminator from James Cameron's movie. Uh, Aladdin was with Jeffrey Katzenberg for, from Disney. And The Matrix, of course, with the Wachowskis and Warner Brothers. And every time I tried to make a game of my own with my own, like I could call the game whatever I wanted, but it was very hard to get attention for it. But whenever we made something that was licensed, it would, it would just automatically take off. We'd have a hit and uh, my career would advance. So branding was one of the big secrets in the, in the game industry without a doubt. But the other thing that we found, we did this Earthworm Jim game and we actually did it the other way around. So we were one of the first developers to license out. So we did a TV show, toy lines, Halloween masks. We ended up doing fast food meals, all kinds of stuff, all from this video game property. So learning how to license in and learning how to license out were both, I think, really fascinating um, aspects of the game industry that I got a taste of, got to see all kinds of very interesting things. But the DNA of the game industry is people want to be entertained and they want the entertainment level to be high. They don't want long lulls between enjoyment. Um, and so there was a moment in time when games started, you used to try to get a high score. And then there was this pivot that happened, which was uh, who cares about scores? We just want to finish the game. So you, you, you got infinite lives effectively and you would, you know, a lot more people were finishing games. And then I got very interested in this idea of free to play. And, and I went to China and Korea and I met with the game companies there and I started giving lectures in the US about how I felt that free to play was going to be important in the future of the industry. But the thing that we learned from that was that people will pay to save time. And it turns out that's the most, if, so whenever you meet a game designer and they've got some free to play game, I just say to them, I already know what your number one selling item is. And, and they'll be like, okay, what is it? And I go, whatever saves them, saves the most time. Cause the gamers work it out. Like this is the thing that has the highest reward for their time. You know, all the other stuff doesn't matter. That's something to really think about in the, in uh, it, when you're thinking about designing games is, is people, the willingness to pay is greatly related to what they can get in a condensed amount of, of the time that they have available. And the more you give them, the more they're willing to pay. The other thing you learn from games is that modern games, mobile games, things like that, the desire to pay to save time is so advanced now that you'll get someone spending $10,000 on a mobile game. And you, you know, if you had told me that 20, 30 years ago, that someone would spend $10,000 to play some game on a phone, I, I it would have sounded insane. You know, you can spend $100,000 on the game if you want. So you can see how that fundamentally changes how you think about designing those games. And, and there's a danger because you get to a point where some game designers start designing friction into the game so that you have to buy it back out. And I think that's where it gets a little, a little problematic when 
you're making things hard just so you, you, you can buy out the difficulty, if you know what I mean? Like it's a, it's not the best use of a game designer's time because it's just at that point, nothing but going for money. You could make it hard to have fun uh, instead, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And so, um, but a really good game that's well made, that's entertaining, that if people want to spend money, they can, is I don't think is a problem. And, and so fascinating to see Uh, how people will pay to to get to make progress and get on with building something or doing something it's amazing so the game industry again in every dimension is still just getting started in my opinion and uh, there's so much to learn there's so many new, new things that come out of the woodwork and the as long as you you sort of stay with the time i think uh, i think the, the space is incredible What I also find incredible is that it is possible to play a game together with somebody else, with many people around the globe you have never met, but you start to form groups in certain games that's possible to form groups and do the tasks at hand or do the whatever that the, that the game is about. And so you bring people together that would have never met, basically. They spend some time together. Sometimes may, they may grow into a team or some sort of thing, but maybe not. not. And uh, in the next game, they would play with somebody else. So that's also something very powerful, I think. The idea of playing together, again, in the start of the industry, that wasn't really a thing. And uh, it was more couch play, so that if two people in the same room having fun together, that was really good. But the idea of group play and you know massively multiplayer sort of fundamentally changed what was possible. And it got really quite exciting to, to really uh, think about that. What I was interested in was the psychology of it. So I was once in China watching a, a game developer show me their game, and I saw something I'd never seen before. It was a dancing game, boys versus girls. And when one side lost, they had this concept of humiliating the other side. And I, I was like, humiliation? I've never seen that before in a game. And what would happen is a wheel would spin and all the boys would suddenly be wearing big panda outfits and they'd, they'd walk awkwardly because they're basically being punished for losing. And, and I, I was like, this is the smartest thing because you could see in the comments everyone was laughing and so we brought the game back to the west and tested the same idea in the west and we had the exact same experience which is i would watch these kids that were playing this game actually apologizing when they leave the game and i and i was like this is gold like this is this is a room full of strangers who've never met each other will never meet each other playing a game together and then apologizing for leaving because they feel part of the part of the group, if you know what I mean. They've become a group of friends in, in a very short period of time. So there's a lot of interesting psychology in gaming too, like that. And I think if you were to plot that out, there's, there's endless possible trees of, of discovery for, for how to get people to interact and have fun together in the shortest amount of time in a very, in a, in a very enjoyable way. So that um, I've heard of examples as well where you'll get somebody There was an idea in, in games where if you bought products, you would naturally buy them for yourself. So if you bought a horse, you would buy a horse for yourself. But I then heard this, this idea, well, what about wealthy people that want to buy 100 horses? Should you stop them buying 100 horses? And it's funny because in the Western game designers, they wouldn't even think of, of op offering that. And in the Asian game designers, it's like, well, why not? And so then you can share those horses with other people. And that means that 
Can you imagine at night you're you're wait there's a whole army of people waiting to borrow your horses? Um and they can't they're 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 literally texting you. Are you are you are you gonna get online? Where are you? Come hurry up so that you can, you know, we can all ride together and we will be a militia or an army together and you're funding it because you're you own the equipment, but you make it possible for this entity to exist and, and play. The the point is that there's just so much space to play with that kind of psychology and to have fun and to make those people feel empowered when they're when they're you know the, the king or the queen of that land uh, it's kind of interesting so i at some point when i retire i plan to get back into gaming again but i love the idea of getting back in um without deadlines or pressure uh just just to have fun and find some talented people to work with i'm really looking forward to that build up a new workshop next the to workshop. the wood workshop <laughs> games right there in my workshop for sure you're now working on something that seems to be different than games but we just touched on doing games together thing and i was wondering if there's a good connection to to viral and and caro that you're currently working on and uh, i think we need to explain what it is because i i think the the idea is actually very very simple but it's so simple that it was hard to get to um and there was also a pivot where you started uh rather looking for connecting to influencers and then pivoting to to sort of working building a, a platform together on on the shopify platform and i i know this sounds very weird but i think you can explain it much better I was wondering if there's a connection f uh, to that playing together to selling together. It's a really great question. I like the question because I am finding now that where we are today in the project, there is actually opportunity for gamification. And, and I'm, I'm hoping to get in maybe 2023, 2024 to get to spend some time on that. But what happened was the game industry touts how big it is. Like it's the biggest thing in entertainment you know, a hundred billion dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars. And, um, and so then you go, well, what about e-commerce? Well, that's trillions of dollars. Um, and so to me, it's like, well, I know nothing about e-commerce, but does that stop me getting involved? Can I learn? It's a bit like cloud gaming. Can I just learn e-commerce as I go? And so that's exactly what we did. So we asked ourselves, um, I have a co-founder. We asked ourselves, what is the most important thing in e-commerce? for every single brand. It's a very simple way to sort of filter down an idea. Um, the two most important things that every single brand on planet Earth wakes up to is I need more attention for my brand and I need more sales. Those are the, there's n you will not find any brand that says, please, no more attention, we're good. They're, they're buying Google clicks, they're buying Facebook clicks, um, they're working with influencers, they're doing everything within their power to get attention. And so that's where we started. We built technology to help brands and influencers work together in a pretty unique way. And we got that working. We got lots of brands installing and using it. But we realized, is this the big play? Like, is this the big opportunity? Is this some sort of marketing platform thing? You know, where you work with influencers? Is that the big swing? And then COVID hit. And when COVID hit, people became less interested in attention and more interested in sales. So they wanted sales. Uh, with an exclamation mark after it. And so we asked ourselves, what could we do to help brands sell more? And so the concept was sell more together. 
So if if you have a if you have a bicycle brand online, but you don't sell helmets, which by the way you find all the time, it's really bad. Like you've got to sell helmets for goodness' sake, because if not, they'll go to Amazon and buy the helmet. You sure you don't want to have a helmet in your store to sell with your bikes? Because we have lots of helmet companies that already installed to use our influencer software. You know, we can connect you up today, so you'll have helmets in your store today, and you won't have to buy the helmets. There's no risk. Uh, you can, if you sell the helmet, then um, the wholesaler will will ship it off um, instantly to the to the uh, the buyer. And so we had all these brands just start working together. So this was this was an interesting idea because this sell more together made a lot of sense. And when you step back and you go, well, how did retail work? If I made a protein bar and I got it into a, a major store, like in America, we have. Whole Foods, which is a big grocery chain, um, or Costco or Target. These are huge chains in the US. If you got your protein bar into their stores, you get their traffic for free. So that changes your your whole life. Like, I mean, you'd be hugging each other if you got those three. Who does that for you online? And that was the question we sort of asked ourselves, like, who who's helping you get your product into lots of online stores so that you can enjoy their traffic for free? And the answer is nobody. So let's do that at scale. And that's basically what we're building. And so you're pushing your products into other people's traffic. You're getting, you know, they're selling your product. The, the orders are coming back to you to fulfill. And then there's an interesting twist to this. Well, if I can push my products into other people's traffic, can I pull some of their products into my traffic? So, um, you know, let's say I'm the, the bike company. Can I bring in helmets from this company, gloves from that company? buy clocks from this company and just pull all this stuff in. And and now I can test different products, different categories, make money from all these different things. And so the the fun part of this is that all works now. So we do that with lots of huge companies. What's interesting is I think it's going to end up going back to the video game industry because the video game industry needs this too. We have esports and and influencers with Twitch channels and uh, all these kind of people that could quite frankly, start to build their own customer um, base. And so there's an interesting concept that what I realized is in social media, when you look at all these influencers, they're very focused on getting followers. They get up every day stressing about how many followers they have and how fast they're growing. But what they don't really realize is that followers are just a metric on a social media platform. You're not an influencer if you actually can't sell anything. So imagine you've got a million followers, but no matter how hard you try, you can't sell a single t-shirt, for example, or a single bike. You just can't do it. Then are you truly an influencer? And, and if you are an influencer and you can get people to buy bicycles, then why don't you you own your own customers? Because if you have your own store and, and all the big ones, the Paris Hiltons and Ellen DeGeneres and Kim Kardashians and Mr. Beast, they're all building their own uh, uh commerce systems now so that they can ultimately own their own customers. And by doing that, what you've actually done is you've said, here's the social media platform. I've now extracted all the people that I can actually influence. And they're now in my um, in my own store as customers. That's a, that means you've in a way backed up your most valuable followers um, into your store. And that matters because social media platforms keep disappearing. Like Vine, Vine yeah. was huge in the US, it's completely gone. So TikTok may get canceled. Um, there's people with 20, 30 million followers on TikTok. If that platform disappears like that, they're going to be in terrible trouble. 
So this idea of influencers sort of owning their own customers is all is just a perfect example of just a byproduct of helping them think a little differently in how they work with brands. And uh, and that's just a, just a little pizza or a platform. So people like uh, our, uh, we we power stores like Paris Hilton's store on our platform. And you don't need to develop your own technology because all of these things are based on Shopify, which is easy to use, which has APIs, lots of functionality, lots of people who know what to do. And so basically everybody, all your the, the people that you just talked about could do their own store with products from somebody else and have perfect fulfillment. Every process would be great. Everybody is sort of making money together. And uh, me as a, for, for example, sailing influencer, I could sail, sell boats, equipments, bundles, stuff like that, where I think that's the best thing to have and recommend or sell my recommendations, let's put it that way. And so that together thing, I think, is really, really cool because it's it's so simple to do. It's basically the click of some uh, install the software, the Shopify and, and put some stuff together and then talk to people and come up with cool bundles. I think it's a no brainer, as you said, on your website. If you think about a space that you're operating within, it seemed smart to us to help some some people work together like You have a makeup company that doesn't sell brushes. And if you ask the makeup company, why do you not sell brushes? They say, because we don't make brushes, we make makeup. And it's like, but they're going to buy the brushes somewhere else. You should be selling the brushes and the mirrors and the purses and the other things that go with makeup because it will increase your average order value, which will unlock your marketing team. But you can see how that would be an automatic block. You wouldn't think to sell it because you don't have it. So then when you say, well, actually, you can have everything. I mean, you want mirrors and cases and, you know, those special mirrors with the bulbs around the edges. We have all of it, right? What do you need to monetize the best? Um, you can try different things. doesn't cost anything. But then you get into this. My, my co-founder likes a, a pickleball, which is a sport that's taking off in the U.S. And the pickleball, the largest community is called The Kitchen. They have 350,000 members. And so if you're the, if you're the kitchen, do you go and get a warehouse and start filling it with pickleball equipment? Or do you just use this digital technology? Our platform is called Cairo. And Cairo allows you to, um, our website is GetCaro, just to be clear, um, getcaro.com. But it, it allows you then to, to partner with um, all of these different pickleball suppliers and build a pickleball marketplace. And at no, there's no risk, there's no capital outlay and now you can you can monetize that community so we'll do that kind of thing but what happens is my co-founder and myself go how many communities are out there like how many how many groups of people that could make money from the the, the group buying supplies maybe the group shares the money i don't know but somehow they have a marketplace um, or someone builds the marketplace for that group or that email list or that facebook group or that you know, the scuba divers or whatever, whatever the subject is, they can just build it on our platform instantly without having to take any risk. And so that future, I think, is quite exciting. And that's that's why that's why I'm enjoying it. I don't know what I'm going to do after this. That's the real question. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if I should use that question in the end of our conversation. <laughs> no, but you can see why when when you do enter into a different space, It is, it's interesting to, to, to realize that 
um, as long as you're coming at it from a, a different angle, you're not just copying other people and doing the same thing as them. It's a bit like saying in a video game, you have to come up with a new hook. Well, we've done that with yes. uh, e-commerce. You're sort of leveraging the technology that is Shopify uh, and and their popularity, uh, their professional services and stuff like that, and, and uh, sort of making it very easy to basically copying something like a, a marketplace uh, such as Amazon. Let's face it, lots of stuff from Amazon is not from Amazon. And, and you, you can do something similar uh, as a normal person, basically. Yeah, um, it is interesting because if you're an influencer and you send your click to Amazon, which they've done for like 10 years, they get like 3% of the sale. Um, I, I My wife said to me, can you set me up an Amazon account because I want to sell dog um, accessories so I can give the money to to rescue to, to dog rescue and and I said to her well, why would you do that we have we have Caro they'll give you ninety five cents for each dog bowl we give you nine dollars per dog bowl are you sure you want the ninety five she's like why did you never explain it like this to me and I go well that's the difference when you're the retailer because you you're not the affiliate so an influencer gets an affiliate click, which is usually just a, a few percent. And then Amazon keeps all the customers. So you get a few percent and they keep the customer. If it's your store, you get, uh, you know, 20 to 50% and it's your customer. It's fundamentally a game changer for, for people that can create sales. Absolutely. And it's, it takes a moment to get to understand the, the model, but then as you said, it's a no brainer. I'm not the only one that likes it. I mean, you have uh, big investors. Uh, PayPal is one of your investors, which brought you also a lot of attention. And so that sort of is probably a still for you. I mean, you have done lots of things. It must be a good thing to have be backed from a big name investor. It's fun to see you learning about investment. When you get an investment from PayPal, the way they do due diligence, the way they check out your company is so advanced because they you know, a big, big global company like that, a public company is going to have to do everything meticulously. And so it's actually fun to experience that, to have, you know, venture capital companies, but also um, in, in certain, they're, they're considered strategic investors. Um, but when, when they invest, it's, it's, you're, you're learning the whole time. So this is how it's done very professionally, you know, from a super high quality company. Yeah, it's fun. You're learning again start learning about investing, right? That, 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 you, that I never took a class on investing, but you're learning as you go and you're learning from really great people. David, I know you're in the very middle of Caro. I will not ask the question, what is the next step for you? Because that's sometime down the road, but we know that there is something coming. So my alternative question is, why do the next thing? Why would you do something new? Why not relax and go golfing or sailing? Interesting question. So when you're when you're um, in business, you tend to spend a lot of your time making spreadsheets and PowerPoints and uh, you know PDF files and all the rest of it. And I sort of had an epiphany one day that if you if you look around your room right now, so you're in a room, have a look around. Whoever's listening to this, look around your room and see how many different things are in the room that somebody made. Um, and 
when you start to really think about it, you can go down to the screw that's holding the table together and say some guy obsessed over that screw, getting it just the way he wanted it. And, and, uh, and, and the whole world is built by creative people. And so I found that I felt like everything I'm doing is digital. At some point, I want to participate in the analog world, which is the world around us. And so that's where I started to get interested in doing things like woodworking, because you're going to leave something behind. So I don't see my daughter, you know, one day when I'm gone, being really excited about my PDF files. You know, look at that PDF file he made. That's really great. Let's go through some of those spreadsheets he made. <laughs> like, is that, is that the legacy you leave behind? And so I think just in the world of creativity, I want to leave some things behind that are actually, you know, treasured from people in my family that would hopefully want to keep them. Um, and that usually means creative things, art, it could be photography, it could be physical things with woodworking, metalworking. So by building those skills, you can actually start to make, and, I, and it's already happened to me, so I've made furniture for people that you know they treasure it because it's been made specifically for them and using the best possible materials and so i think that's a fun question to ask yourself what what do you leave behind when you're gone and uh and be careful that it isn't a bunch of pdf files or a bunch of you know just digital data that might not uh, might not make it however i have to say one thing i am enjoying is the more that you contribute data wise to the world Thanks to the the chat GPTs and the future of AI, at some in some way it can still persist, which is kind of going to it's going to be interesting. So, but that would be a very long answer to your question. Just want to start participating in the analog world as well. It's a sort of the answer about a, a legacy, living a legacy. Would you have answered this question the same way, say, 30 years ago, when you're about half that age? Yeah, absolutely not. Um, you, you have a completely different perspective on the world at that point because you think your laser disc collection is worth investing into. I was buying laser discs, you know, all the best movies, and and then at some point I realized I'm I can't even sell these. There's no value to this anymore. I, and I guess that's the point: is things time moves on, and so you have to embrace that and allow that, that to happen, and not to get too stuck in. In, uh, in whatever that that thing is because you know like you, you could collect up all your old cell phones from the past but who cares time's moved on and so for me it's a case of uh of trying to embrace that and 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 just enjoy letting time move on so your your perspective changes so when i was younger i was collecting and hoarding all kinds of stuff now i'm like let's get rid of it it's absolutely pointless that it's sort of it's just a different perspective david our conversation today was really valuable to me and I think for a lot of people listening to, a, to our conversation. We will put all the links in the show notes so people can follow up on, on the things we talked about. Thank you very much for taking the time for this conversation today. No problem at all. It was great to catch up with you and, uh, and good luck with the podcast. Thank you for listening to the 2.5 Conversations Connecting Innovators. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. A transcript of this episode and additional information is also available. The link is in the show notes. My name is Klaus. I'm an innovation coach in Baden-Württemberg in the southwest of Germany. 
This is the 2.5.